The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Hey, pay bill. A van. Yeah, well, whatever. Could you step on it a little? Immigrants. You're going to live in the land, you got to learn the language. Well, do whatever you can, huh, Chief? Hey, and while you at it, could you turn on the Giants game? You know, baseball ski? Baseball. Reds. Uh, Reds game? Yeah. Baseball game, capiche? Anthem. Anthem? What do you mean, Anthem? No, I'm the Anthem. Wait a minute, that don't sound right. Must be playing a Canadian team. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, February 27th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be You know, I always wonder what kind of country my own country of Canada might become in the years ahead. What will be the operative philosophy of Canada? With what nations might we develop or cease alliances, unions, and relationships as we head into the middle of the 21st century? In part one of our conversation with Salim Mansour last week, we learned that nations are far more fragile than most people generally perceive as he offered a quick reminder of the rise and fall of the nation-state throughout history, the various political structures under which humanity has been governed or ruled have taken many forms. Like, think about them. There's an empire, a commonwealth, a kingdom, a republic, a common market, a federation, a state, a province, a union, a nation, a country, a municipality, a region, a territory, and you could go on and on. And it got me to thinking... Consider that when the U.S. president annually addresses Americans, his address is not called the State of the Nation, but is instead called the State of the Union. This speaks to a profound distinction regarding the independent nature of the political units being so identified and the people who live within them. It's not a political structure that you want to be taking for granted because the fluid dynamics of the nation-state can easily lead to alienation within nations, as interests and commonalities once shared instead become conflicts and cause for national divisions. The temporary duration of the various political structures under which humankind has been governed or ruled throughout history, even very recent history, merits due consideration. So after having done that very thing last week and looking at the state of the unions, known as Britain, Europe, and America, this week our attention turns to Canada, the country that many consider to be the odd man out with regard to the most recent political shifts in the Anglosphere. Our discussion with Salim Mansour continues right after this reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud or on Stitcher. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. And while you're there... 
consider offering your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. I'm in studio with Dr. Salim Mansour, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Western University, and we're going to take a bit of a look at our domestic scene here in our own country of Canada, and there's a number of issues that are concerning you here, Salim. I note that you brought up the issue of the protests that are going against the pipeline and perhaps a few others that are of concern to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, it seems that 2020 has begun in Canada as many of us expected on the wrong foot. We have a minority government in Ottawa. We have a prime minister who is fixated with the idea of climate change and of getting a seat in the United Nations Security Council, the open seat in the United Nations Security Council. And as we speak, Bob, he's out of the country. He's been out of the country for the past week or more, visiting Africa, attending the African Union annual gathering, and all in the effort to get the African vote for that seat for which uh, he is fixated with, while the country here is literally, literally hemorrhaging. We have a escalating railway strikes, uh, CN has shut down its eastern railway networks because of protests against natural gas and oil pipeline. Via Rail has shut down passenger service between uh, Toronto and Ottawa, Toronto and Montreal. It might also affect, if this escalation takes place with the protests, southern Ontario. So we don't know, but that might happen. In Western Canada, the issue about the pipeline is become extremely divisive. Western Canada is more or less totally alienated with the way Ottawa is going or not going on making the decision to have the pipeline built. So that is on the pipeline side of the story. In Ontario, we have continuing teachers' union outstriking and kids are missing classes. We are in a new year. There's four months to go before the school year is over. And the teacher union is holding the rest of the province as hostage to their demand with the Ford government for more money. Well, they say it's not about money. (laughs) They always say that. Yeah. It's not about money, but everything is about money. Ontario has the largest deficit and debt burden within the federation and in a sense we are broke but the union doesn't seem to care so it is dark cloud ominous clouds over canada at the at this moment as we speak and then we have the conservative party of canada into their leadership campaign and it seems that we are now seeing basically the full slate so to speak of candidates who would be running for replacing Andrew Scheer, who stepped down after the 2019 election, the October election. And the people who are running for the leadership are Peter McKay from the Maritime Nova Scotia. He had been a cabinet minister. I think he was the justice minister, the defense minister, and the house leader, I suppose, during the Harper administration. He had been the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, and then 
he worked with Harper to unite the right that built, made uh, the Conservative Party of Canada. So he's running, and there is a general view, at least in the media, the mainstream media, that Peter McKay is a man to beat. In other words, he is possibly going to be crowned the next leader of the Conservative Party. But his opponents are, so far that we see, Erin O'Toole, who was also a cabinet minister in Harper government. He is from Ontario, Durham, Ontario. He's a sitting member in the parliament. The interesting thing is those few candidates who people thought were going to run, were expected to run, David Drew, Pierre Polivier, Rona Ambrose, who had been the interim leader of the party after Harper stepped down, she withdrew. Oh, John Bade, who had been the foreign minister in Harper's cabinet, people thought that he was going to run. He's from the Ottawa region, but he declined. There is from Sonia Lambton, Marilyn Gladeau, who is the only woman now running for the leadership. So we have not too many, and none that is striking and interesting. Well, honestly, I, you know, when it comes to talking about the Conservative Party of Canada, I'm so not interested in that party anymore and haven't been for... For very good reason. Yeah. I mean, you're not interested. It's, it, is, it is a party by name conservative, and it creates the massive confusion because it is the last thing it is, it is anything to do with conservatives. That's right. <laughs> so here we have basically what used to be called, and we should still call them, the Red Tories, that is the progressivists. Mm-hmm. You know, they just want to be another version of the Liberal Party of Canada. You know, they've all headed in the same direction, which is where Andrew Scheer was headed, where basically Harper left the party as a party conservative in name only, but very much, you know, center-left oriented. And when you look at the policy, there's nothing to differentiate them between them and Justin Trudeau. Well, whether it's the problem. economy, whether it's the economy, whether it is you know, immigration, foreign policy, defense policy, and of course, the whole issue about the United Nations, you know. So whether it is climate change, whether it is UN Compact on Global Migration, whether it is UN Sustainable Development 2030, all of these people are signed up on that. And on the issue of pro-life and pro-choice, they're all pro-choice. The litmus test to be a conservative leader, Bob, this is an amazing thing. We are a G7 country, but the litmus test for being a conservative leader is whether the leader or the, the potential leader, the expected leader, is going to go to the Grey Pride Parade. <laughs> <laughs> If you're not going to the Gay Pride Parade, you cannot run for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. But of course, for me on the federal front, the emergence of the PPC, which you were a candidate of during the last summer election, is the place for Canadians to look for a change. Because as the international community has even noted, Canada in the Anglosphere is the odd man out right now. Absolutely. And Maxime Bernier, I understand, is actually going ahead with suing Warren Kinsella. Yes. I don't know whether that's going to be a plus or a minus, depending on how the courts rule. Yes. But certainly he hasn't backed down from his commitment to continue with his efforts. Right. And what I would like to see is more people paying attention to what that party was about, is about, 
and plans to be about because that's the only one that I see moving in a positive direction in the sense of some of the things we've been talking about today. Absolutely. I mean, your concern, my concern, the concern of Just Right Media and, and, and people who stand with us is about free speech. And it is no wonder that, you know, a week or so ago, the minister responsible for CRTC came down with the argument that we need to license every broadcasting outlet, you know. Well, he's backed away from that now, apparently. But uh, when they start talking about it, you know it's on their mind. That's right. I mean, that is a test. They were floating an idea. They backed away, but they will come back to it again because this is on their agenda. This is on their radar. That is in how many different ways they're going to put a gag on the Canadian public. PPC is the only party that unequivocally, without any ambiguity, stands for free speech. And free speech means free speech, unhindered, uncensored, and free. And that's the, we are the only party, the PPC. The CPC hasn't come out. Still wedded to the idea of hate speech, still wedded to the idea of Islamophobia. I'm sitting in front of you. It was the charge against me was Islamophobia. Ridiculous. By Andrew Scheer and company. I have basically described the Conservative Party of Canada as the spare wheel in the Laurentian elite's contraption. The Laurentian elite runs the country and all the four parties are simply their four wheels. I agree. And so do Canadians really even have a choice of where they're going until they're made aware of their choices? Because clearly that was one of the big problems in the last election is a lot of people either did not know they had that extra choice or were misinformed about the choice that they had, you know, with all the calling the PPC racist and all those nonsense things, which I know from firsthand observation was simply not so. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. I'd say the PPC is the only non-racist party. No, the Canadian public in general, in a generic sense, were uninformed about the PPC. What was or little that they knew or got to know about the PPC was the smear job that the corporate media ran with that was manufactured, fabricated, and pushed by Warren Kinsella, who was hired by the Conservative Party to smear Maxime Bernier and the PPC as a party of bigots and racists and anti-immigrants and anti-Muslim. It is a disgraceful situation, and yet we do not have an opportunity or a platform by which the Canadian public can be given information and, you know, lesson about the history and the politics of the Conservative Party of Canada. In this first edition of Political Circus, I have to talk about the Conservative Party leadership race. Well, Peter thinks pride parades are important and he will march in one in Toronto. Apparently, marching in pride parades is the most important issue right now for the Conservative Party. Andrew Scheer chose not to march in a pride parade on personal religious grounds and the left-wing media decided that it was unacceptable and that he was a bigot because of it. Anybody who does not believe what they believe or do what they do is a bigot, a racist, intolerant. I marched in a pride parade some years ago and I don't plan to march in one again. But also, I don't need to do that to prove anything. 
Frankly, I do not care what the left will say. Look, a parade is a parade. And no, Peter, it's not important. What is important is to ensure that the state regards everyone equally to ensure we all have the same rights. No need to march in a parade to govern well. You do need good policies on the basis of clear principles. The politically correct left is more interested in emotional symbols and using them to attack the right. Meanwhile, the intellectually and morally corrupt Conservative Party is too weak to fight back. A question that keeps coming up is... Max, why don't you run again for the leadership of the Conservative Party? <laughs> I stayed 15 months after the last race and I realized that the Conservative Party's establishment is not interested in our ideas. They are morally and intellectually corrupt. All their policies are based on polls and anti-buzzwords. They are not interested in debating the important issues in Canada today from a free market conservative perspective. Andrew Scheer moved the party to the central left to take votes away from the Liberals. That's why I left and I founded the PPC. There is very little difference now between the Liberal and the Conservative parties. It won't be any different with a new leader. When he launched his campaign, Aaron O'Toole attacked the frontrunner Peter Mickey and said he would turn the CBC into a liberal party light. <laughs> but it's already that. <laughs> I have no wish to go back and fight the party's establishment. We need a party that is not afraid to tackle the important issues. Yes, we got only 1.6% of the vote last October, but that's 300,000 Canadians who supported the PPC. That's a lot of people. It took the Green Party 20 years and six elections to have more than that. It takes a long time to establish a new party. Many Canadians still don't know about us. I don't know how long it will take for the PPC to elect MPs, but if we want our ideas to have an influence, we must fight for them. We must defend them. We must defend our principle openly, with passion and with conviction. I invite all the disappointed conservatives who want the real conservative ideas to be debated, real conservative policies, to join us at the PPC. Come with us. We are the only conservative that will fight for real conservative values. Yes, I said conservative because we believe in individual freedom, personal responsibility, respect, and fairness. And there's huge difference between us and the fake conservative. Huge difference. First, we can speak about, uh, you know, immigration. We're the only party want to, uh, the only party that want to lower the immigration level and having more economic immigrants, and we are ready to be sure that we'll stop the illegal migrants crossing the border in Quebec. We need to have a discussion on immigration, 
But the conservative won't speak about that. We are the only party who will balance the budget in two years. And also we are saying to Canadians how we will do it. We will, first of all, as you may know, cut the CBC. We can save more than $1 billion there. We will also end corporate welfare. That's another $5 billion over there. It's not fair to tax a small business entrepreneur in Montreal or in Toronto and forcing him or her to pay these taxes and giving that to Bombardier, GM, or SNC-Lavalin. We must stop that and having a policy that will be fair for every entrepreneur. So yes, by lowering tax to every single entrepreneur in this country, we can do that and we can save $5 billion. We can save another $5 billion to stop foreign aid. Justin Trudeau is traveling right now in Africa and is buying votes with your money to be sure to have a seat at the UN Security Council. We know that the UN is a dysfunctional organization. We won't fight for having a seat at the UN. We will bring that money back here in Canada to help Canadians first, to put our country first. We won't sign the global compact on migration. We will write our immigration policy here in Canada by Canadians for Canadians. We won't sign the Paris Accord Agreement. And we won't impose new regulations or taxes on businesses to fight climate change because there's no climate emergency. We will let uh, that to provinces. You know, if a province wants to fight climate change, they can do that at the provincial level, but not at the federal level. But the conservative, they will do it. Scheer said that it will do it, and the new leader will do the same thing. Yes, they will have a new leader in a couple of months from now. That will be only a new face, a new face on a centrist party that will do everything to buy votes, like the liberals. So if you want a real change in this country, look at our platform. Come with us at the People's Party of Canada. Don't hesitate. You know, look at our platform. We have a real platform for a more prosperous and a freer country. So I'm looking at the Canadian situation, Salim. Canadians are really in desperate need on a federal level of a true political alternative that moves in what we would call the right direction. And we've seen a lot of effort on the part of the federal government and other interests trying to prevent anything from the right getting out in terms of newsworthiness. But were you aware of the thing that was going on with Ezra Levant and him being called in and Rebel News being questioned about the book he wrote during the last federal election? And they're trying to stifle Canadians with what they call political regulations of finances, of what can be expressed during an election. All of these things, they're completely frightening, and they're being done through regulation, through the elections Canada, and then provincially we have the same problem. I mean, in the province of Ontario, over the past couple of years, we weren't even allowed to have freedom of association within our own members of, for example, the Freedom Party of Ontario on the provincial level, that they actually made that illegal for people to associate on a political level. And no one is screaming in this country. The media isn't saying anything. Uh, I see a very dark future for us if this kind of trend continues. 
Yes, I share your perspective, Bob. The alternative is electing a People's Party of Canada government. Whether that will happen or whether that's a pipe dream is up to the people. But the people are uninformed. The question that you might then ask, why the People's Party of Canada will in any way be different than what we already have, that is the Conservative Party of Canada, and of course the Liberal Party of Canada being the natural governing party. This discussion merits a much wider time for us to talk about it, but let me compress it for the purpose here that Mm -hmm. that we are engaged in. Uh, I would say, as an observation that you already made a little while back, was that Canada is now the only country in the Anglosphere that stands apart from the other countries in the Anglosphere, principally Great Britain and the United States. And I think what the Brexit has meant, what the election of President Trump has meant, what now President Trump has come out of uh, this sham impeachment that he was acquitted by the Senate, and that he is likely going to win the 2020 election and what what is happening. And to put it again very quickly, what is happening is the Brexit was about regaining basically the freedom uh, of Britain as a free people that they felt. uh, And it was not simply a matter of feeling. It was a matter of policies. It was a matter of what was happening in terms of Britain as part of the European Union. That is, Britain was being dictated to follow the policies and politics you know, dreamt up uh, by the unelected chiefs of the European uh, Union in Brussels and Stuttgart. And among them was policies, for instance, dealing with immigration, policies dealing with free speech, policy dealing with gender issues, apart from economic issues. So we're back to what is uh, a cultural war. I mean, are we a free society? Are we a free people? Or are we going to be a people in some ways dictated by and controlled by authorities that think and believe that they know better than the people, that they are in some sense, you know, endowed with qualities that makes them the elite and separate from the people. So that's that's the struggle. And I, Bob, see the struggle is going to consume much of the first half of the 21st century. We're already into the third decade now. You know, this is 2020. Mm -hmm. We've entered the third decade. And I think this is the struggle of our time. The election of President Trump was similarly about, you know, breaking away from political correctness, reestablishing or reaffirming the fundamentals of the Bill of Rights, that is the First Amendment, you know, freedom of speech, the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, and so on and so forth, you know, protecting the American Constitution, uh, protecting what is ultimately the American exceptionalism as a free society, the deregulating of the economy uh, and unleashing the free market, which is what has led to this massive historic boom of the American economy, the wage growth, the uh, employment figures, uh, and so on. Now, Canada is completely, in that sense, out of the loop. Yeah, we're not doing any of that. We're not. We are back again to more regulation. We're back again to seeing with this parliament following the election of October 2019 of finding more ways in which to take away our rights as a free people, to become 
more and more part of the globalist agenda. That's where Trudeau is running around in Africa trying to get a seat in a dysfunctional United Nations. And that instead of our parliament being the place where the elected representatives of the people debate, discuss, and decide what is good for the people, what is good for the Canada, the parliament has been turned into simply a rubber stamp for the globalist agenda. So PPC is the only party that is stands against all of that and stands for deregulation, stands for freedom of speech, stands for protecting the Canadian culture, the culture that is part of, in the sense of the Anglosphere. That is, we are right. a, a product of that history that begins with Magna Carta and runs through into the 20th century, defeating the two most powerful totalitarian attempt to be world powers, that is, uh, the Third Reich, uh, the growth of na National Socialism on the one side, and then uh, international communism with Soviet Union on the other side. And, and that's our history. And instead of protecting and defending that history, the Conservative Party of Canada, along with the Liberal Party of Canada, has veered away in the direction of going the route of once again helping abet and be complicit with a globalist agenda, which is nothing else but another form of soft despotism or soft totalitarianism, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's where we stand where the PPC stand. And that's our difference between us and the Conservative Party. They carry the label conservative, but they have not done anything that merits both in domestic politics and in international politics what today conservatism would represent, which is what we see in Boris Johnson's England under a conservative party and in America under Trump and the Republicans, or that is Trump Republicans. There is a very dangerous situation developing in Canada right now. A tiny minority of demonstrators are blocking streets, railways, and ports in different regions of our country. They demonstrate in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who oppose the construction of a natural gas pipeline on the territory they claim as theirs in British Columbia. If this continues, it could paralyze several sectors that crucially depend on transportation. For the demonstrators, this is a conflict between Canadian colonialism and the rights of indigenous people. But that's not true. The conflict is, first of all, between different groups within First Nations communities. The five Wet'suwet'en elected Ben Council support the natural gas pipeline. Their communities will benefit from it. It will bring jobs and economic development. It's only the hereditary chiefs who oppose it. These chiefs may be part of a traditional indigenous governance, but this is a reaction 
reactionary way to govern a community and a society, like we had centuries ago. We cannot give it political legitimacy. The conflict is always and also between all of Canada and a mod of radical Greens activists who want to bring us back to a pre-modern, pre-industrial society. They want to shut down our energy sector. They want our economy to collapse because they think that's what it takes to save the planet. Canada is a modern democratic country based on the rule of law. We cannot allow a tiny minority of reactionary fanatics to paralyze our economy, or else we can say goodbye to our social peace and our prosperity. There's a lot of talk about an independent Quebec these days, but just how close are Quebec and Canada coming to separating? They join me now. Good evening, Canada and Quebec. Vive le Québec libre! So, I hear you guys are going through a really rough time right now. I have outgrown such a man. He has no culture. He knows not how to please a woman. I want a separation. Same thing happened in 95 when yeah, we saw yeah. a counselor. Usually I send her to Florida and she calms down. Come on, honey, you're making a scene, eh? Ah, oh, moi? Moi, un spectacle? Tu es un grand cochon. Ferme ta bouche quand tu parles. Eh? Wow, man, she sounds like she can be pretty abusive. Ah, uh, it's probably my fault. I'm not as cultured as she is. I'm just a dumb hoser. Oh, eh? come on, Canada. Don't talk like that. You're a great catch. No, 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 no. You don't know what it's like to live with such a pathetic man. I am an independent woman. I don't need Canada. I will be using the Canadian dollar, though, just till I get back on my feet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She wants the money, all right. For someone who hates English so much, you sure like pictures of the Queen, don't you? What did you say to me? Ah, uh, you heard me. Let's see how independent you are without this $17.8 billion in transfer payments you get every year. I earned that money. Without me, you would be nothing. Where would you be on the world stage without Celine or Cirque du Soleil? I tell you where I'd be, Las Vegas. <laughs> Neither one of those two stepped foot in Canada in years, eh? Yeah, that's it, buddy. You stand up for yourself. And you know what? I'm getting pretty sick and tired of having to say everything twice, once in English, once in French, just once. I'd like to take a flight where I could buckle my seatbelt without having to boucle my cincture to security. Don't you dare bring Air Canada into this. Guys, guys, look, you know what? Maybe we should all just take a deep breath. No, you know what? You want to go so much? Go! And don't let the porn hit you on your dairy ear! You can kiss my perfectly shaped erotic thong wearing derriere! Au revoir! Yeah, whatever. Mm. Wait, Quebec, no, wait, oh, come on. Wow, man, that was, that was pretty intense. How do you think you're gonna move on now that, uh... What? Every time. I can come and go as I please. There are no borders in a sovereign Quebec. She's scared of the dark and she gets her hydro from Newfoundland. Well, good luck to you. I hope you both get your stuff worked out. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Take the case of uh, our uh, crisis in, in the Canadian Federation. The crisis in the Canadian Federation is that the central government 
that is Ottawa, is dictating policies to the provincial government which should be in the provincial arena. And so we are not treating the provinces as equal partners in the federation. We have become increasingly a unitary state. That is what the prime minister and his PMO decide is what becomes then the nature of our... Very much like the problem that the European Union has. Precisely, precisely. The parliament is simply a rubber stamp. You know, you can elect a cat and a dog and send to the parliament and it means nothing. Now, you would imagine, or one would have imagined, that the Conservative Party of Canada would be different. But we had a Conservative Party of Canada in power for 10 years under Harper. And coming back to the federal-provincial relationship, you find that Harper did nothing in trying to bring about a change in that federal-provincial relationship which would make Ottawa treat the provinces as equal partners. There was not one single first minister conference during the 10 years or almost 10 years that Harper was a prime minister in which the top agenda would have been How do we bring about a situation in which the provinces are equal partners with the federal government? Well, Harper was a member of the Reform Party. And during the reform push through the 1990s till reform became the Conservative Party with merger with the Progressive Conservative, the two key issues of the reform party politics policy terms were balance the budget, lower the debt rate, that is, get rid of the deficit, budget deficit, and start paying off the debt by unleashing the economy, growing the economy. And the second one was the triple E Senate, an equal, effective, and elected Senate. That is, the upper chamber in our parliamentary system of government should, as it does in the American system, reflect the interests and voice of the constituting members of the federation, that is, the provinces. But our provinces, our, our representation in the Senate is totally... It is, first of all, an appointed Senate, and then it's totally imbalanced. You know, it is not an equal Senate. The the numbers of senators or Senate seat is all loaded in central Canada with Ontario and Quebec. You know, we have 105 senators, and the way it is divided is 24 for Ontario, 24 for Quebec, 24 for Maritime, that is the four maritime provinces, or the three maritime provinces in this case, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI, and 10 seats for uh, Newfoundland and, and Labrador because they came into the Federation in 1949, later on, and then 24 seats for the four western provinces, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia, all lumped together. Right. Now, the, the dynamics, the Canadian economy and Canadian growth is in the Western provinces, but they don't have a voice 
in the center. They don't have a voice in the center, neither at the, uh, at the House of Commons, the lower chamber, which is the people's house, like the House of Representatives in, in the United States. So the Western provinces don't have the numbers there because the population is based in central Canada, again, Quebec and Ontario. And then to balance off that heavily weighted House of Common representation in central Canada with uh, equal Senate, which is what the Reform Party politics was all about. You know, you know th this speaks to a very fundamental principle in structure of government, something that Isabel Patterson back in her book in the 1930s, The God of the Machine, addressed. And she said, in any functioning democracy, representation attaches to the base. The base is always geographical. It must be defined by a jurisdiction, which speaks to the whole issue of nations and sovereignty. And this also speaks to the, to the fundamental conflict between the Democrats and the Republicans and what's going on in the states. You have all these people who think that they should be getting rid of the Electoral College and that you should just have millions of people in California and New York <laughs> vote for the whole country, right? And they're just ignoring the people who are in the center of, of the nation. That, to me, is exactly the same as trying to argue that Americans, because there's more of them, should have a right to vote for affairs that are going on in Canada. I mean, you can pick any jurisdiction anywhere and pick one that has a greater population than another and then argue on the basis of simple numbers of voters that the one with the larger number of voters should be able to rule everything. That's ridiculous. That's not how... You can't function that way. It's not mechanically even possible. So are we, aren't we dealing with a much greater issue than just that constant imbalance? I think we have to go back to understanding that, you know, that representation does attach to the base, that, that we start with the geography. Absolutely. I mean, that's why we call that's why we have order. representative democracy. Right. Right. It is representative democracy. It is not uh, a democracy in the classical sense of what was in Athens, that every member is representative and votes and people gather in, in, in the market square and make a common decision. What is a representative democracy is that you elect your representative who then is accountable and responsible to the constituent, number one, and then they're accountable and responsible to the country, that is the mm -hmm. institution of the country to which he, has, he or she has been elected to go and work and engage in governing the country. The second aspect of it is, as again you correctly point out, to talk about a nation state uh, is to talk about a bounded geography. Right. You know, well, what is globalism about? Globalism is about a bo one borderless world. That's right. You know, and and so it does away with the notion of uh, a. a a bounded geography, a nation state. In fact, Angela Merkel said in 2018 that nation states have become obsolete and they should hand over their responsibility and the power and the sovereignty to the higher body, in the case of European states, to the European Union, and for the rest of the world, to the United Nations. So well, that, that in itself is another discussion. Well, yeah. it's not, not only another discussion, it's a contradiction. All she's doing is replacing several smaller states with one larger one. 
No, it's not. A, it's not a contradiction. I mean, we we decide. The people decide. I mean, here it is. If if Mr. Trudeau and no, but what I'm saying party. is, she hasn't eliminated the idea of a nation state. She's just changed the nature of the nation to be one. Okay, we call, we can now call Europe a nation instead of calling its constituent. Uh, members nation. Well, I mean, I mean, the word is nation state that has become part of the usage, but America doesn't call itself a nation state. No. It is, America is a republic. republic. A nation state would be a state where the people are of one nation, either defined ethnically or linguistically. So France is a nation state. We're dealing with the problems of modern day immigration. That's a whole different issue. But the coming together or the making of the nation states, that is the Treaty of Westphalia, the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire, and that 300-year experiment that began in the middle of the 17th century, is that the boundaries of the state, and therefore nation state, the boundaries of the states would be the boundary of that ethnic group. Right. So if they... Or cultural group. Well, ethnic is culture. It, these are all various ways to define the ethnic group, religious group, linguistic group. But that is the shared commonality. Right. The shared commonality. So, Scotland is part of the United Kingdom. Henry VIII did not have a son, and so James, what was he? James the Third, James the Fourth of Scotland became James the First of England after Elizabeth I and united the Scottish crown with the English crown. And so that's the United Kingdom. But Scotland wants to separate. The Scottish National Party wants to separate. Within Great Britain, there are those separatist or secessionist movement. So Scotland wants to separate. If Scotland separates and joins the European Union, which is what it wants to do, the Scottish Nationalist Party, then the bounded area, which is Scotland, with a commonality in terms of ethnicity, the Scottish identity is very much an ethnic identity, then Scotland will be part of the European Union. That means the people have willed themselves in, back to Rousseau, mm. people have willed themselves in through an election to join another larger body. And remember, Bob... But still, that, but as Nigel Farage pointed out, that's not a movement towards independence. That's just a movement to joining a different, larger block. Well, the independence may be by joining a larger block. I mean, this is, again, back to the general will of Rousseau. It is not the will of Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage has to convince his people or the people who agree with him to go in that Good direction. Point. All right? So I'm giving you both hypothetical and also at the same time the fact on the ground that it is a Scottish Nationalist Party that is being in conflict with the Westminster, just as the Irish were at one time, right? I mean, so we're just talking about the, the history of one country, that is Great Britain. And if the people of Scotland sufficiently succeed in willing themselves through an electoral process, a referendum, to opt out of Britain, that is the United Kingdom, and join European Union, that would be the decision of the people, just as on January the 31st, through a referendum and through an election, the British people, not the English people, the British people, affected the exit from the European Union. So we're talking about democracy, right. and democracy carries all sorts of connotation in terms of the will of the people. Look at this. Record population growth during the third quarter of 2019. 
Let me read. Canada's population increased by 208,234 from July 1st to October 1st, 2019, driven mainly by an influx of immigrants and non-permanent residents. This was the first time that Canada's population increased by more than 200,000 in a single quarter. Hang on, hang on, hang on. 208,234 people in a quarter, like a, like a quarter of a year in 90 days? Trudeau promised that we would have only 340,000 new immigrants, give or take, in a whole year. Let me read some more. This is Statistics Canada. This gain represents a quarterly population increase of 0.6%, the largest growth observed since the beginning of the period covered by the current demographic accounting system, July 1971. International migration, both permanent and temporary, accounted for 83.4% of the total Canadian population growth in the third quarter, a share that continues to increase the rest of the gain, 16.6% was a result of natural increase or the difference between the number of births and deaths. Let me read a little bit more. The strong international migratory increase observed during the third quarter was led by both the arrival of many new immigrants, 103,751 persons, and an increase in the number of non-permanent residents 82,438 persons. Growths of this magnitude had never before been seen in a single quarter. Well, does it matter what the classification of these migrants is? It doesn't matter practically. They will all send their kids to school. They will all go to the same hospital emergency room as you and wait in line. They will all sit in traffic. They all need housing. Those that do work, if they do work, will drive down labor prices, you know, supply and demand, especially if they're unskilled. Hey, why is traffic so bad in so many of our cities? Why is it a six, seven, eight hour wait in the emergency room? Why are food banks and homeless shelters so full? Hey, why is it hard to get an entry level job in Canada that pays well? Hey, how come housing costs so much? Well, look at this. Here's also from Statistics Canada. It's the number of houses in the country that are under construction. Uh, houses of all kinds, single-family homes, apartments, everything. So in that same third quarter of 2019, uh, the number of houses under construction, um, when there's 208,000 more people coming in, there were 51,865 new homes being built. If you're in the construction business, this is great. If you're in the real estate business, if you're a landlord, it's great. If you're in the low-skill retail business, as in if you're an owner, like let's say you own a Tim Hortons, this is great. I mean, cheap labor, just happy to be here, happy to be earning $14 an hour instead of what, $4 an hour back home where they came from. But if you're not a landlord or a cheap employer, if you're just a regular Canadian, we're born and raised here, your family paid taxes to build this country, schools and hospitals over the decades, and now you can't find a job that pays enough to let you leave home, leave your parents home, let you buy your own home, start a family. If you can't afford to buy a house in Toronto or Vancouver, if you can't find a job in Calgary, Edmonton, if you can't get your kids into a university, if you can't see a doctor when you need one, well, maybe 208,000 new people in 90 days isn't that great, but hey, they all vote liberal, so there's that.
Quebec's mad at Alberta. Alberta's mad at Quebec. In fact, the two provinces are seeking counseling as they enter into a separation agreement. To tell us more, I'm joined by Quebec and Alberta. Hello. How's it going? Hey, don't turn the heat up. That's expensive. Don't be so cheap. I deserve to be warm. Put on some clothes. I can't. I'm French. I'm sensing some tension. I take it you two aren't getting along. We've decided to separate. We tried to stay together for our kid, but... Your kid? New Brunswick, half French, half oil-thirsty cochon. What? What's that word mean? Oh, you think you could learn my language? We've only been together for 150 years. I want to separate. Oh, no, you don't. I want to separate. All she does is spend. She's been stealing from me. It's called equalization. It's in the Constitution. It's our prenup. I'm just trying to keep my head above water and she's hiding money. I gave her 13 billion because she said that she needed it and then it turns out she posted a $4.8 billion surplus. <gasps> so he's been seeing other provinces. He spent all his time with Saskatchewan. Oh yeah? You've been screwing Ottawa for years. Ottawa pays attention to me. Ottawa thinks I'm special. Ottawa gives me money. Ontario's a half that province. That's my money he's spending on you. Okay, uh, so I'm uh, sensing money problems. That can be hard in a relationship. Are there any substance abuse issues? He's addicted to oil. I am not. I can quit whenever I want. <laughs> money problems, addiction issues. What about your sex life? She won't let me lay any pipe. That's all he thinks about, his pipeline. Oh, come on, honey, can't I just lay a little pipe? Just enough pipe to get to the coast, just a tip? No, you stink like a gas station. Well, it seems like irreconcilable differences to me. Hey, good riddance, the second I dump her, I'll be rich again. Oh, please, you're not broke, you're just cheap. If you implemented a 5% sales tax, you would make another $5 billion a year. Oh, that's your answer? I should just go tax myself? Well, you might as well go tax yourself because you won't be laying any pipe here tonight. Good night. No, no. Come on. Just a little pipe. Soupy. Just a small. Just a one little pipe. But within a bounded territory, as is Canada, as is the United States, as is most countries, the question then emerges whether these bounded territories have more than one constituent part. You see, the British House of Parliament has two chambers, House of Lord and House of Common, but it is the House of Common that is the elected chamber. The House of Lords is still the appointed chamber. Traditionally, the House of Lords represented the landed interests, and the House of Commons, as the very name suggests, represented the interests of the common people, not the landlords, not the peers. And so it was the democratic voice that was heard in the House of Commons. And so even though there are two houses, it's a bicameral system, that is Westminster, it is not a federation. People from Scotland elect members through their parties. It's a multi-party system, right? Mm -hmm. And you elect your members to the one house, that is the House of Commons at Westminster. Same thing in France. France is a unitary state. France doesn't have provinces. So French Republic is a unitary state. It also has two chambers, but it is a unitary state. Germany, on the other hand, is one which is made up of states. 
provinces. Mm. So there are two chambers. One chamber represents the states. The other chamber represents the population. America is the classic example. Two chambers. America is a federation. It is made up of 50 states that willingly comes together to form a union. That is the United States of Republic. And so the two chambers represents the population. One is the population, one is the states, right. right? The anomaly is the Canadian system because the way we evolved over time, at the time when Canada was established, 1867, there was only three constituting parts there. The maritime provinces, New Brunswick, PEI, and Nova Scotia that joined the Dominion. There was Quebec, which was a lower Canada, and Ontario, Upper Canada. And so the divisions that was made there was based on the consideration of 1867. The House and the Senate. The House would be population-based, and which is just right. And the Senate would represent the provinces. And so the division was made 24, 24, 24. We now need to rethink that. And that is what the Reform <laughs> Party agenda was. And we, as we go forward in the 21st century, this is going to become more and more critical. And if it is not reform, then the threat of secession will increase. We could be looking at a complete realignment of states and essentially what we might call different countries and nations in the future. Exactly. I mean, if, if So that's if, never written in stone. No, nothing is written. I mean, Soviet Union, what happened to exactly. it? Exactly. You know, empires, what happens to empires? They dissolve. In time, they can be reconstituted, you know. Mm -hmm. In the case of Canada, in the Western provinces, alienation grows to the point that the remedy is seen to be separation, then Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, if Manitoba joins the seceding provinces, they can form a state of their own, or they can then exercise their popular will, that is the general will, and offer themselves for a union with the United States. That's something at play all the time, you know. I mean, if Canada dissolves, where then the constituting elements will go? Well, that's a great question to end the show on, Salim. And I guess we could say that what's called a nation today might be alien to us tomorrow in terms of being an alien nation. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us once again. And we'll ask our listeners as well to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Yeah, look at all you lovely, sweet-looking Canadian people. <laughs> you guys are all so sweet, right? Because you're Canadian, right? You're nice. <laughs> Sooner or later, we gotta... We gotta just own up to the fact that uh, we are not the nice ones in our relationship with our neighbors to the south, right? Everyone thinks around the world, oh, Canadians are so nice, Americans are awful. <laughs> That's not the way it is. You ever ask an American what they think of a Canadian? George is like, oh, they're so great, they're just great little people up there with their cute hats, they're awesome, I love them so much. You ever ask a Canadian what they think of an American? 
What about you guys? You got anything nice to say? <laughs> oh, sure, when there's one around, yeah. Yeah. We're not stupid. We know there's a good chance they're armed. <laughs>